Welcome here this morning. You made it. You set your clocks forward. I, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I saw our face, our uh, our, um, our social media post of "Don't forget to set your clocks forward." And I was just curious. Ooh, there we go. Um, how many young people have any idea what that means? I. I was like, when's the last time I set a clock forward? I asked some people this morning. I was like, no, I set a clock forward. I, you know, my whole life is around my phone, so all I know is I just woke up more tired. I don't know what happened. It was just, I was just more tired. Anyways, we are uh, glad that you're here with us. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you, if you have your journals, you can kind of pull those out. Uh, we would encourage you to kind of read through Mark as we go through Mark. You do your devotions in these journals. You can bring them with you on Sundays. You can take notes in them. Uh, if you don't have one, there's a, we have a few uh, left available at the Welcome Center uh, that you can pick up. Uh, some of you guys uh, put some on order, and we have some there waiting for you uh, to pick up as well. And so we're going to just jump right in because we got a lot of content. The, the first few weeks of the series, we took it kind of pretty slow because there was a lot packed in the first chapter of Mark. And so we took three weeks to kind of go through the first chapter, uh, and now things are going to pick up. So uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground in a very little amount of time. Um, but uh, we are looking at Mark chapter 2 today. Mark chapter 2 going all the way to Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Here's a little bit of the outline of the, the pieces in Mark chapter 2 that we're going to look at. You can see the titles there. Those are the same titles that are in your, in your journals. Uh, and so we'll get to that. But the title this morning is Good But Not Safe. And that line, if you know, maybe it sounds familiar to you, comes from uh, the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, uh, the, uh, from C.S. Lewis, the famous book there. And it's referring to Aslan. There's a character in there, Mr. Beaver, and he says, Aslan is a lion. And, he's, and the lion is metaphorical for God, for Jesus in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. So Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I think sometimes we expect God to be safe, and we will see here in a second uh, that God is not safe, that Jesus is not safe. He is he is utterly good. He is utterly loving, but that does not mean that he's safe. And this section, uh, chapter 2 to 3, verse 6, is referred to by scholars as the conflict section in Mark because you'll see that Jesus goes from being super famous and having this following and everybody wants to be around him because of all the things that he's doing, the healings that are happening, the, the amazing teaching that he's given. And all of a sudden, by uh, the end of this section, we see that Jesus has a lot of enemies. We see escalating conflict. And I don't know if you have kids or if you've experienced escalating conflict. Uh, I, can, I can hear. Like, they might, they might be on a totally different level of the house, and I can hear the beginning of something where I know it's going to end. Uh, you know, this past week, I was sitting downstairs, and I start to hear something upstairs. I, I, you know, I just have this hunch. This thing's going to escalate uh, really, really quickly. Uh, I hear, you know, one of my boys complaining that the other boy's toes was on his cushion of the couch. It's like, all right, here we go. I hear, uh, move. And and so actually what I did is I I was like, I got to see this. So I I, I walk up the stairs and I stood on the stairs to observe the whole thing. Uh, And so so the other boy says, uh, say the magic word and I'll move my toes. And so the 
One brother says, please. And then the other brother says, that wasn't the magic word. Uh, That's not it. And then the other brother pushes the feet off. And you can see how this thing is escalating. And then the other brother pushes back. And then I hear, you know, them yelling at each other. And then all of a sudden the fists start flying. And then I, the third brother actually gets in the middle and is pulling them off of each other. The whole thing just escalates. And this is what we actually see happening in Mark chapter 2, this escalation of conflict. And to understand the conflict and understand why it's happening, we, we actually have to understand the context. And so let me give you a little bit of a context of what's going on in the Jewish world at this point. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah. The Jews understood themselves to be God's elected people, God's chosen people, that they were going to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. This is what's referred to when the Bible talks about election, that they were elected, they were chosen, not just for themselves, but for the benefit of the whole world. So the assumption is that God has chosen you, that you're God's special people, that you probably aren't going to be um, oppressed and enslaved by other nations, right, if you're the special nation. But they found themselves over and over and over again under, uh, under oppression from uh, other nations. And so right now, uh, at the time uh, that, we're, that this is being written, the Jews are being oppressed by the Romans, And so you have different groups, different Jews that are trying to wrestle with, how do I understand that God has a plan for me, that God loves me, that God has actually called me to be a part of a a specific group of people for the benefit of the world? And so different groups kind of have different ideas around how to manage that tension that they were living in. And so we'll see these guys a lot, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, the name means either separated ones or holy ones. From their inception, Pharisees were opposed to the Greco-Roman ideals. So they were opposed to Greek culture and Roman rule. So there's a couple things happening at this time. Uh, The the Greek culture, the culture of Greece, was actually going all over the place. And so you you, you have two things happening. The Romans were occupying land, and Greek culture was infiltrating uh, other cultures. And so uh, the Pharisees felt uh, that they had to separate themselves. Uh, They had to... Uh, double down on the law, on the things that God called them to do and how God called them to live in order to be separate uh, from, separate morally from those around them. So there's about 6,000 Pharisees in the first century, but that was only about 1% of the population, but it was the the largest group out of the four groups that I'm going to talk about. Jesus himself, we often don't think about this, but Jesus himself, when compared to these other groups, uh, stood closer to the foundational beliefs of the Pharisees than uh, the other groups. That's partly why he ended up having so much conflict with them, because uh, they maybe were hoping or seeing that he could be one of them, uh, but it turns out he was different. And so the Pharisees, in a nutshell, wanted to reform. Their primary goal was to reform the Jewish nation. If people would just become more holy, if people would just become more righteous, if we could come into greater obedience to the Word of God and what God already told us, then the Messiah would show up, and maybe God would finally deliver Israel. The only reason he hasn't showed up is because we are living like the nations around us. And so we must separate ourselves morally. We must reform. And so this is what the Pharisees were calling other Jews uh, to. There's another group called the Essenes. Everybody say Essenes. So these were Jews who believed that everything is too far gone. There is no hope. You know, Greek culture has taken over. The Romans are occupying us. You know, who are we? You know, we just... God is calling us to be separate, but not separate morally, separate physically, because the only way that we can actually be who God called us to be is to get out of here. And so the Essenes 
they went to the desert. They felt like they had to revisit what their ancestors did when the ancestors left Egypt, found themselves in the desert. They're like, we got to go back to that time. Back away from culture, back away from the influential powers in our day and just be by ourselves in the desert. This is where God remade us in the past. This is where God is going to remake us in the present. And so the Essenes, their response was to retreat, to get out of there. While the Pharisees tried to separate themselves morally within the culture, the Essenes believed that a physical separation was necessary for God to show up. So this is how they... As, as Jewish people decided to try and honor God in their context. There's another group called the Zealots. Everybody say Zealots. Obviously, you can guess, the, these guys had a lot of zeal. These were Jews who believed that the only reason that God hasn't given victory is because we're not stepping out in faith. We're cowards. If we take on the Goliath of Rome, then just like God delivered David back in the day, he will also deliver us. God will honor our faith. He will honor our courage. We just need to be courageous enough to stand up and face the man. These were the zealots. They wanted revolt. So the response, to fight back, to revolt, to fight fire with fire, sword with sword. Our God is a warrior. He will reward our courage. If we step up in faith, then he will raise up a Messiah who will help us be delivered from the hands of the Romans. The fourth group, is the Herodians. Everybody say Herodians. So Herod, who you've probably heard of, um, it's important to understand that Herod was a Jewish king. He was a puppet king that was, he, that was put in rule by Rome. So Herod was Jewish, yes, but he represented uh, Roman rule. So the Herodians were Jews who believed if you can't beat them, you just got to join them. Maybe this is God's way of looking out for us. Maybe this is God's way of protecting us. When we assimilate to the culture around us, when we just kind of come under Roman rule, uh, when we just kind of get behind Herod and his, you know, his political platform and what he wants to do, then we'll be safe, then God will protect us. And so they were just, this group was just looking to reinforce what was happening. They were looking to reinforce the efforts of Rome and Herod, and the last thing they wanted was to disrupt the waters. Then they might be booted out of the land, or worse, maybe they would be even killed. So why would we push back? Let's just survive. God's providing our protection. Those were the Herodians. So we had these four groups. This is the Jewish backdrop. The Pharisees, the Zealots, the Essenes, the Herodians, all wrestling with what do we do when we believe that God is for us, that God loves us, that God has a plan for us, and he's, he's going to bless us to be a blessing to the world, but yet we find ourselves in this position. And so all these different groups were reacting responding to that tension in different ways. And my guess is that you and I have a tendency in our seasons of waiting and our seasons of questioning to respond in a similar way uh, to one of those groups. We might resonate with one of those groups. Now, these groups were all very religious. They were all very committed in one sense to, uh, to their God as they understood it. Most people in the world now believe that if there's a God, you relate to God by being good. And all religions are based on that principle. Though, of course, there's a million different variations or understandings of what it means to be good and what God is looking for. But these guys were trying to be religious as far as they understood it. Some religions are what you might call nationalistic. What they, are, what, what they say is that if you connect to God by coming into this people group, 
and taking upon yourself the markers of being a part of this particular society. And so we would see this in the Herodians and the Zealots, different understandings of what it means to be a part of the, this people group, a more of a, uh, just an assimilating political kind of stance. Other religions are spiritualistic. So you've got nationalists, we've got spiritualistic. They say you reach God by working yourself through certain transformations of consciousness. We just got to escape from what's happening in our world, from the physical reality of what's happening. And the more we can escape, the more spiritual we become. And we can kind of see this response uh, in the Essenes. Other religions are, are, are very legalistic. There's a con- code of conduct. And if you do it, then God will bless you. And we see that posture in the Pharisees. They're all based on the same idea, though, that religion is if I obey or if I perform according to what's expected of me, I will be accepted by God and God will reward me. Christianity, the good news of Jesus, is not only different than that, it's absolutely diametrically opposed to that. It's completely opposite of that. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel of Jesus, Christianity says, I am fully accepted in Jesus, therefore I obey. They're two completely different ideas. So these four religious groups within the context of Judaism were trying really hard to be religious, really hard to get it right, really hard to to get God's uh, covering and acceptance. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Mark chapter 2. We're going to work our way through it. I'm going to try and move as quickly as I can. Uh, I'm sorry, some of, these, some of this will feel a bit like a, a fire hose. And again, you'll want to pause. And I'll, I'll, I'll try and pause at a couple of spots. But we, we, got a lot of, we got a lot of work to get through this spring. So here we go. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And then they could not get near him because of the crowd. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now, scholars, uh, you know, N.T. Wright specifically, a New Testament scholar, uh, believes that this house is being referred to as actually Jesus' house. There's other scholars that say it might be Peter's house. Uh, but I just think that's an interesting idea that Jesus here, uh, they could be in Jesus' house. Uh, that, that Jesus' house is getting invaded and torn apart as he's in there preaching. Uh, so we see that Jesus is getting popular, that there's crowds around him. I don't know if you've ever been uh, in the middle of a hustling, bustling crowd that was trying to get towards somebody famous uh, years and years ago. Um, I, went to, uh, I went to a U2 concert in Vancouver. Uh, and I really like U2. That was the first time that I'd been able to go to a concert. Us and a bunch of friends float early one morning, and we stood in line all day uh, because uh, if we were in line soon enough, I think it was the first 500 people or so, uh, th- there was a stage, there was a 360 stage, and then uh, there was a stage within that stage, and there was about 500 people they let into the inner circle uh, in between the stages. Uh, and so we got there early, we flew in, and we stood in line all day because we wanted to get into the inner circle. We wanted to get close to Bono. Uh, and so we stood in line, we got these numbers on our wrists, and I, f- I forget exactly what number I was. Um, and so I felt like we were going we to be good. Uh, and so we're waiting in line, 
and I've been waiting since 8 a.m., got these numbers. Uh, I forgot to tell you that at this time, uh, my wife Lisa was very pregnant with our first child, uh, Joel. And, uh, but we thought this, you know, the great opportunity to go to Vancouver before she, you know, we have to shut down the fort for the next 20 years. Uh, let's, let's just get out there. Uh, so we're waiting in line. She's very pregnant, probably kind of borderline. Maybe we shouldn't have flown there, uh, but that's how pregnant she was. And so we're in line, and I remember uh, they opened the doors at a certain time, and uh, there was nothing orderly about what happened when they opened the doors. Uh, in fact, apparently all the numbering system on, the, on our arms and hands uh, wasn't even done by, by the people working at the stadium. It was, they were just volunteers that were trying to get some kind of order into the line. Uh, and so as soon as the doors opened, it was like utter chaos, and people were just sprinting. We had to sprint all the way through the stadium, all the way down the ramps, all the way to the field, uh, all the way into the inner circle, and my wife was really pregnant. <laughs> so I had a dilemma. Do I wait for my pregnant wife, or do I see Bono face-to-face? And you know I love my wife, but I, I really wanted to see Bono. So I just, I sprinted and I ran. And I just, you know, she'll find me. She'll, she'll figure it out. Uh, and, and eventually we did find each other. Uh, but anyways, the, this is kind of the scene we have that Jesus has, is turning into this famous figure. People are love, love him. People are amazed at his teaching. People who are, are diseased. Uh, come to him and get healed. People who are unclean come to him and are cleansed. All these things are happening and crowds are talking about it and there's murmuring and people are showing up trying to get close to him. Trying, and not everybody can fit in the house and so there's crowds that are outside of the house waiting to see Jesus. And so you can imagine this type of atmosphere. People are waiting. People probably have needs of their own. And, the, and, and so we have this house that Jesus is in, maybe his own house, preaching. People are coming to hear him. The roofs at this time were made of wooden cross beams with matted reeds and branches and dried mud that was kind of um, keeping, the, keeping it together. And so you, you can see how, uh, how this works, that they might be able to dig a hole in the roof itself. In fact, the Greek says uh, they unroofed the roof. That's what, that's what it says. Uh, and so often in Greek, they actually repeat the same word multiple times to, to put emphasis on it. So like, they took apart the roof. So you got these guys tearing apart the roof. You got dirt falling. Jesus is probably trying to... Um, he's, he might be in the middle of his third point of his really awesome sermon, and there's dirt falling, and there's a man here who needs to be cared for. And think about this for a minute, this, this man who is paralyzed. Not only does he need to be cared for in this moment, but he, he's probably been requiring care for a very long time. He needs to be carried from point A to point B all the time. He needs to be clothed. There's nothing that can be done medically. There's no cure. There's no medicine. There's no surgeries. Anyone in this man's conditions would have to go through life as a beggar laid out on the side of the road, and this was, would have been his occupation, just begging for money all the time. And he wakes up in the morning helpless. He wakes up maybe in a room that he can't walk out of on his own. He looks at this three-by-six mat that he sits on that's his begging mat, and this is his life. And he knows that this will be his life every day for the rest of his life. So he doesn't have much going for him. He doesn't have much to be encouraged by, but he does have one thing going for him. What he has going for him is he has really good 
friends. I think we could safely say without his friends, we wouldn't have a story. He would have never made it to Jesus. He would never been healed. He would have never been forgiven. And when Jesus saw their faith, picking up the story here, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? And so we notice that Jesus saw their faith. This is not simply intellectual conviction, but boundary-breaking activity. The faith of these friends is observable by Jesus. Faith is observable. And, 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 I, and I've talked about this many times, but faith is beyond intellectual belief. It's, it's actually trust. It is an action word. And so Jesus visibly sees their faith. Now the text kind of brings together these two ideas that the man was paralyzed and the man was forgiven of sins. And it's actually bringing this idea of sin and paralysis together. Um, and we can't spend a lot of time on this. And we know that in John 9, just because someone is suffering or someone uh, is diseased or something might be happening in their life does not mean that's because of sin. But we also know that because of the fallenness and brokenness in our world, that things aren't the way that God intends them to be. Sin, if we think about this metaphorically, sin can exercise such force in our lives that people are unable to move or change. And in some ways we could see uh, this man, this paralyzed man, as almost a picture or a metaphor for what many of us know intuitively. That sometimes sin has affected us, maybe choices that we've made or maybe choices that other people have made, to such a great extent that we feel paralyzed. That we feel helpless. Maybe it's addictions. Maybe it's habits. Maybe uh, you may struggle with such intense uh, feelings of anger and unforgiveness. Maybe there are hurts that you've experienced. Maybe it's depression. But the reality is in our world, many of us experience things that make us feel helpless and paralyzed. And many of us maybe feel like this paralyzed man has, does, that he can't take action, that he can't move forward in faith. But just because you may not have faith, you may not have trust in Jesus, or you may struggle to have hope, doesn't mean that others won't for you. And I, re- I often reflect on this passage and I think about what does it mean to have roof-crashing friends? What does it mean to have people that will break any barrier in order to bring you to Jesus? What does it mean for you to have people in your life that have faith for you when you can't have faith on your own? If an opening to Jesus cannot be found, one must be made, and that is the description of faith. It will remove any obstacle, even a roof, even Jesus' own roof, to get close to Jesus. So when we think of these friends, let me ask you a couple questions. What kind of friend are you? Are you that roof-crashing type of friend that will go with your friend to break down barriers or do whatever you have to do to make sure that they are touched by God? What kind of friends do you have? Do you have friends that actually help 
bring you to Jesus. I think we need to be roof crashers for others, but we also need to have roof crashers in our own lives. You know, there's certain ministries in the church that I think talk about this really well. We just talked about our missions. It's Missions Month, right? So we have uh, people that we support, initiatives that we're a part of in places in the world where we are intentionally trying to be roof crashers for people that feel helpless and paralyzed and don't have any other hope. What does it mean for us to have faith and trust and action on their behalf? We have prayer ministries here at SunWest, and there's a, you know, there's a gifting and a focus in prayer ministry called intercession. All intercession is really, really talking about is bringing other people to Jesus in prayer. All of our pastors at SunWest have uh, prayer partners. Every Monday or Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, depending on when I get around to it. But often once a week, I send, I, I, I have prayer partners that ask me what I need prayer for each week, and I send an email uh, inviting them to be roof crashers on my behalf. Because I can't always pursue Jesus on my own, and we need a community of faith that are roof crashers together that we will help each other get to Jesus. And so whether it's being involved, uh, whether it's having people praying for you, being involved in groups ministry or, or, or being on a mission trip, I think God is calling us to be roof crashers for one another and for others. So then is that, you know, Jesus says, yeah, he says to the paralytic sons, your sins are forgiven. And then they, they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, I won't spend a lot of time here, but here's another example where Mark is trying to show us that Jesus is God. He's, he's creating this predicament in the story where you have to make a decision just like the Pharisees did. You and I have to decide whether Jesus is God. Because God is the only one that can forgive sins. And Jesus here stands and says, I can forgive this man's sins. Well, who can forgive sin, sins alone? That's blasphemy. And the, the judgment the consequences of actually being a blasphemer was being stoned to death. So Jesus here says, him and God are equal. And so we can start to feel the conflict escalating, right? Your toes are on my side of the couch, except this is a way bigger deal. The conflict's escalating. I am God. I can forgive sins like God. And people don't believe him. People don't actually trust that he's God, that he's talking like a blasphemer. And so Mark draws us into this dilemma. And Jesus said, which is, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk. But you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. He's not saying which is easier. He's saying, which is easier to say? It's easy to say your sins are forgiven because there's no verifiable proof that that has happened, right? But it's harder to say you're healed, get up and walk because the verifiable proof will happen right in front of you. So Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you something that is undeniable so that you can have faith in me in the things that you can't even perceive and that I can forgive sins and that I'm God. Is Jesus God or is he not? This is what Mark is setting up, and they need to decide, and we as well need to decide. So he went out again beside the Sea of 
beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Levi, also known as Matthew, is a tax collector. And a tax collector was a despised group of Jewish people who collected taxes for the government uh, at a profit. And so we could almost see these tax collectors as maybe Herodians. They're just kind of aligning with the powers that be, trying to make do with what they have. Uh, And these guys were despised because the tax collectors were seen as traitors. We are God's called people and we're being oppressed by the enemy and now you're aligning with the enemy. Not only are you aligning with the enemy, but now you are taxing us, further oppressing us when you were supposed to be one of us. You know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about this, you know, Jesus contacting with a leper and that nobody wanted to associate with the leper because they were unclean. A tax collector would have been at least as, de- as avoided as a leper. It would be, he would be even more despised as a leper because he was not only unclean, but he was a traitor. Levi responds to Jesus' call much the same way the four fishermen did in, in chapter 1, if you remember, that they followed Jesus, which means they became disciples of Jesus. They decided to be, they, they wanted to be, he wanted to become like Jesus. And we hear, we see here an example that God qualifies those he calls. He doesn't qualify, he doesn't call the qualified. He doesn't look at, you know, the most religious. He doesn't look at the best. He doesn't look, you know, at the best of the best that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but he calls those who are willing and he will qualify them verse 15 as he reclined at the table in his house many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with jesus and his disciples for they were many who followed him and the scribes of the pharisees when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners so i want you i want you to picture this they reclined at the table what does that even mean uh just pull up my pants here for a second. Uh, they, they would eat like this. This is how they ate. Usually on their left elbow with, a, with their spoon or fork or their hands or whatever they ate with. Um, and so they, they would sit around their meal like this on their left elbow, reclining at a table. It, it, was like a, it was a very intimate type of thing. Eating together in the first century world was an intimate type of thing. It was even more intimate than nowadays. I know nowadays we have struggles having you know, strangers in her house. But it was even more so then. There was no way that you would eat with an enemy. In fact, the people that you ate with was, you were basically testifying that these are your close, intimate friends. And so here we see Jesus reclining, lying down, eating food in front of his Jewish family and faith community with sinners and tax collectors. The word reclining occurs only four times in the whole book of Mark. And every single time, it's either with reference to sinners or with reference to those who have been outcasted. It's four occurrences or reminders to us, subtle reminders, that Jesus has a solidarity with alienated and needy people. Application. If you want to hang out with Jesus, you don't get to hang out with Jesus unless you're willing to hang out with alienated and needy people. Who do we recline with? Who do we do intimate relationship with? Who do we actually allow into our inner circle? I bet you it's a different type of crowd than the type of crowd that Jesus was eating with. 
Jesus heard what the Pharisees said, and he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so we need to hear the sarcasm in Jesus' words. I know, I know it's, a hard, it's hard to actually pick up on sarcasm when you're reading a text, uh, but it's like, those who are well. Everybody do this. Those who are well. It's sarcasm. I, I, I remember explaining quite a few years ago when my youngest son Silas was probably around five or so. Um, I, I did this one time. And he says, Dad, why do you, what are the quotations? And I said, well, it's sarcasm. I said, it's when you say something, but you actually mean the opposite. And so he said, so kind of like, Joel, you're really good at math. I said, exactly. Joel is very good at math, but uh, point taken. I laughed really hard. Joel thought I was laughing at him, but uh, quotation sarcasm. Jesus said to him, those who are well. And so we got to pick up on this because the gospel does not say that the good are in and the bad are out or that the open-minded are in and the judgmental are out. The gospel of Jesus says that the humble are in and the proud are out. The gospel says that people who know they're not better than anyone else, that they're not more, maybe more open-minded, that they're not more moral, the people who know that they're not better than others are in, and the people who think they're on the right side of the divide are actually the ones who are on the outs. Those who find themselves outside of the community in the book of Mark are those who stand in judgment of who they think should or shouldn't be in the community say that again. Those who stand on the outside of Jesus' community in the book of Mark are those who are actually trying to decide who deserves to be in and out in Jesus' community. Jesus is offensive. Jesus is good, but Jesus is not safe, and the conflict is brewing. Did Jesus eat with sinners on the condition that they changed their lives? Was his association with tax collectors, prostitutes, and other sinners dependent on them changing their ways or becoming more godly in order, in order that he could hang out with them? I mean, Jesus certainly would have been pleased if, if they would have changed their ways and changed the, way the ways they were living and the decisions they were making. But if this were his intention, if this was actually the main focus of his energy, we might expect the religious leaders like the Pharisees to be pleased with Jesus, right? But they weren't pleased with Jesus. Why? Because he was not demanding reform before he gave them acceptance. And we know that the Pharisees opposed Jesus at every single corner, and increasingly so as time went on, because they could not stand the fact that Jesus would love people unconditionally, regardless of how they were living and what they were doing. Now, I read that, I have a friend on Facebook, and I read this, and I, oh, yeah, I'm going to include this. He shared this Facebook Quote, one of my friends. So it says, so awesome. I was just in Staples buying envelopes when the cashier told me she'd been suffering from a migraine for two days. I asked if I could pray for her, and she said yes. I leaned over the counter, took her head in my hands, and invited God to heal her, and then commanded the migraine to go in the name of Jesus. Instantly, she said the pain was totally gone. Her head was flushed in war- with warmth and a lightness. I told her God loves her, and she's not alone. God bless you. God bless you, she, ex- she exclaimed. Jesus is alive. And here's the cool part. I'm struggling with a concussion from a car accident, which has taken its good old time to heal. Sometimes we are tempted to think we have to be doing well to be a good vessel for God to flow through. We don't have to have it all together for God to use us because Jesus has it together for us and in us. 
He loves people and wants us to put his love where it's needed. Awesome, right? Yeah, we can applaud that. That's awesome. I think it's amazing. I I was inspired and um, obviously really impactful. Uh, But I was equally disappointed when when I read through the comments on his page because there was another individual I know that commented this way. He said, I love how God is using you, brother, but all signs and wonders are meant for the proclamation of the good news. Just not, not just as a Jesus loves you. We have to be ambassadors of the full word. Just saying God loves you leaves people with a sense that they are good enough, and we all know that no one is good without Christ. Love you, brother, but I would challenge you not to be afraid of the open doors when God does heal someone, and to be bold in that moment to share the gospel. What a prime opportunity right there and then. God is using you in this, so be faithful and make sure you share the gospel. And I was thinking, I was like, what part of healing the woman, what part of proclaiming God's acceptance and love over her and her responding uh, in gratitude and acknowledging what God has done is not good news? What part of that is not gospel? And believe me, I am all for people reforming and changing direction and and repenting and following Jesus. If if, If you've been around SunWest, you know that. But I think we have to be very, very careful because the people that were on the outside looking in were those who were expecting reform and repentance before acceptance. And I've talked about the word repentance before. It's not just turning away from something. It's turning towards something. And and if people are going to give up their lives to follow Jesus, how could they possibly do that without seeing the beauty and majesty of who he is? And when we withhold our love and acceptance from people because the way they're living is not acceptable to us, I think they're actually moving further and further away from the beauty of Jesus. And we see in the Gospels over and over again that Jesus creates conflict with the most religious because he doesn't play by their rules. It's not that he disagrees with them. It's not that he doesn't think how he lives. We know that Jesus taught in the synagogues. We know that Jesus practiced Sabbath. We know that you know, Jesus was a religious Jew in turn in terms of how he lived his life. So he's not against honoring God in the way that we live. But that, he's differentiating the gospel from religion. And we see over and over again, you can look in Luke chapter 19, where there's a tax collector, Zacchaeus. And Jesus actually accepts him before he changes. But out of that interaction with Jesus, out of eating together with Jesus, he actually goes and changes the way that he lives. And that is how the gospel works. We encounter the beauty, the majesty, the goodness, the love, the grace of God, and we begin to change our lives, not in order to be accepted, but because we are accepted. And in light of that, we ought to live differently. The scandal of the story in Mark is that Jesus does not make moral repentance a precondition for his love and acceptance. Rather, Jesus loves and accepts tax collectors and sinners just as they are. Verse 18, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to them, 
Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And I'm going to come back to that, so I'm going to keep moving. Verse 23, one Sabbath, he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abithar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests but the priests to eat and also gave it to those who were with him and he said to them the sabbath was made for man not man for sabbath so the son of man is lord even of the sabbath now in the interest of time i'm not going to spend a lot here but sabbath is about time ironically the sabbath was made for the man not man for the sabbath I, i've heard a lot of people refer to this and say you see jesus is a man that we take sabbath it's for us not, we don't serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath serves us. And, and I want to be very careful here because in our, in our world, in our rat race world, in Calgary, in this world of busyness, where busyness is like elevated as like a spiritual virtue. And I talk to people, how are you doing? And I'm, I'm guilty of this just as much as anybody. Well, we're really busy. And, and we like applaud that idea. God does not applaud that idea because God actually recognizes that human beings need rest. Human beings need rest. That you and I can't just go and go and go and go and be all that God created us to be. The Sabbath was made for you, which means it's not a legalistic thing. Like God didn't tell us to take a Sabbath because he just needed another rule for us to follow. God gave us the Sabbath because we need it. You know, and they had practices in the Old Testament. They'd ha- they had tithing, which meant they, they, they set aside 10% to God, which was just a practice of saying, you know, I'm not going to let money rule me. They practiced Sabbath, which was giving a portion of your time to God. Why? Because I'm not going to let Pharaoh or the corporate r- ladder rule me. I live my life according to a different scale, to a different value system. And I live my life w- with the rhythm of God, not the rhythm of this world. I think some of us in this room actually need to reestablish Sabbath in our lives. Because if we look at the pace of our lives, we'll recognize it's not actually God we're serving. God is not requiring you to work that hard. God's actually requesting you to take some rest. put God first in our time, not because God needs it, but because we need it. And that's why he gave us the gift of Sabbath. Okay. Chapter three, we made chapter three. And again, he entered the synagogue. Interesting note here. This is the last time Jesus will be in the synagogue because the conflict has gotten to such a point that he's no longer welcome. If you read through the first couple of chapters, you recognize Jesus went from place to place. And every time he went to a new place, he went to the synagogue. He taught in the synagogue. That was kind of the context of his ministry. But as he moves across in his ministry and people realize that 
uh, he's not playing to their agenda. He is not welcome anymore in the synagogues. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him. So, sorry, there's a man with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. So he uses three strong Greek words here that appear nowhere else in the gospel. Having surveyed the crowd, Jesus is angry. Jesus is deeply distressed. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. The word translated here, hardness of heart, does not mean malicious. It just means unwilling to understand. It means apathetic. The greatest enemy of divine love and justice is not opposition, it's not even malice, but it's an apathetic hardness of heart that refuses to melt in the face of the grace and love and acceptance that Jesus offers every one of us. Jesus is angry and grieved because people have closed their hearts to him. The Lumineers is a band, and they have a, they have a, they have a line in one of their lyrics that I love. It says, the opposite of love is indifference. And then Jesus says, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against them on how to destroy him. Now remember, the Pharisees wanted reform. The Herodians wanted to reinforce the Roman agenda. These two were exact opposites. These two, were, these two groups were enemies. These two groups hated each other. But now they are working together to plan a plot to assassinate Jesus. Two enemies working together. Why? Because nothing seems to unite like having a common enemy. The Pharisees are moral, moralists. The Herodians are relativists. The gospel of Jesus is neither religion nor irreligion. It's, ne- it's neither moralism or relativism. It's not traditional moral values or do whatever you want. And, and anytime we try and get Jesus in a corner and peg him to, be, to come onto our agenda, he doesn't quite get in the corner. Anytime the Pharisees are like, this is our guy. No, he's not your guy. Anytime the Herodians are like, maybe this is our guy. No, he's not. And, and as time goes on, as ministry goes on, they realize that Jesus isn't getting on any of their, their agendas. And so they all start to plot together to actually get rid of Jesus. So this whole section that we just read, the, the conflict section in Mark, shows that God, that Jesus, God with flesh on, is good, but he's not safe. And if you follow him, you are going to follow him into conflict. There is going to be a cost. Now, let me get really nerdy just for the, la- for the last couple minutes here. And so what's happening here in this whole section is a chiastic structure. Now, what does that even mean? It, it sounds way more nerdy than it actually is. Uh, chiasm comes from a Greek, uh, the Greek word that looks like our, the Greek letter that looks like our letter X, right? And so uh, they would have this chiasm, this chiastic structure. And the whole point of the structure, and you start to recognize it when the, you see parallel ideas at different points in the text. So in... In uh, Mark 2, 1 to 9, you'll see a similar type of events and language in 3, 1 to 6. And B, and you'll see in Mark 2, 10 to 12, you'll see similar things in Mark 2, 27 to 28. What does this all mean? What does it all mean? It just means that the whole point of the section 
is explained in the middle of the chiastic structure. And what's in the middle? What's in the middle of this whole conflict section? Why is all this happening? Well, I read this passage already. I won't read it again. Jesus is having an argument with people about fasting. And he says, while the, gra- while the bridegroom is with them, they don't fast. And if you look in throughout your Old Testament, the only person that is ever referred to as the bridegroom is Yahweh, is God. In the Old Testament, God is the only one metaphorically described as the spouse of Israel. In the middle of this conflict section, we see again the affirmation that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God. And then it says, no one sews a patch on an unshrunk cloth of an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's the whole point of the whole conflict section, is that Jesus does not bow to anyone. Jesus does not get onto our political agenda. Jesus does not get onto our religious agenda. It doesn't matter if you may be aligned with the, more so with, you have a Pharisee type attitude or Herodian or Zealot or where, where you end up. But the reality is that the conflict that is happening in Mark chapter 2 is because Jesus is God and the Pharisees aren't. The Zealots aren't. The Essenes aren't. Everybody loved him at the beginning. Everybody loved him when they thought he was coming to get on board with their agenda. But Mark says, you cannot fit new wine into old wineskins. What does that mean? You've got to blow up your structures and your expectations if you're actually going to receive Jesus. Jesus is the new wine. You can't put a new garment on an old, uh, you can't sew a new piece of cloth on an old garment because it's going to tear away. You cannot follow Jesus unless we get off the thrones of our own lives. We cannot follow Jesus expecting that he's going to follow us in our agenda. I'm going to invite you to stand. The gospel of Mark is clear. That Jesus does not discriminate. That Jesus welcomes every single person into his company. That Jesus is willing to recline at the table with anybody. You think you might not be good enough? Or you think, you know, how could Jesus love me? You know, does God, do you know the decisions I've made? The, the good news of Jesus is that he loves you. That he has grace. His grace is sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me. Thank God. But the only thing that keeps you on the outside looking in is if you start to make Jesus play according to your rules. If you think that he can only accept people that you accept. Or you think that you have an agenda and you really want God to get behind your agenda. That's not how this works. The whole gospel is actually predicated, it's, it's, it's foundational on, this, on, on the truth that Jesus came for the sick. And that those who think they're well, he did not come for. Does that mean that there's some people that Jesus didn't come for? No, it just means that there's some people that don't recognize that they're sick. There's some people that don't recognize that Jesus is God. That he's the Messiah. And so I would just invite you as we sing this last song. Just as a posture of surrender.
that this would be a response to not necessarily getting God onto our agenda, but saying, God, I'm willing to get onto your agenda. I'm willing to be a roof crasher. I'm willing to uh, allow people into my circle that maybe aren't normally in my circle. I'm going to love every person that you love, and I'm not going to put conditions on you. I'm going to follow you. And maybe you're someone that's never made that decision to surrender your life to Jesus. You can do that in this moment. You can do this as we sing the song, that you would, you would sing the song to God and just say, God, I no longer want to be God of my own life. I want to get on your agenda. There's forgiveness and grace, no matter who you are, no matter where you've been. But make no mistake that we need to bend our knee to Jesus because he's God. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you loved and accepted us as sinners, as tax collectors, as people paralyzed in our conditions, as people who are helpless. Lord, we thank you that you don't discriminate, that your love, there's no place in this world, neither height nor depth, that your love does not reach. And Lord, we pray that each person in this room would know that at the core of their being that there is a God out there who loves them who has grace for them, who has forgiveness for them, who has a life that you are inviting them to be a part of. But that life is found when we actually begin to follow you and respond to you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to release our grip on our agendas, on the things we cling to, on our definitions of right and wrong, our definitions of who's in and who's out. And we just simply and humbly say that you are God and we are not. And we want to follow you in everything we do and in everything, in everything we are. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to end by going back to the first story in Mark. There's the story of the roof crashers. You guys remember that one? Um, and I think that many of us need those type of friends and many of us need to be those type of friends. We, we end our services every Sunday with having uh, prayer teams available and uh, no, this isn't uh, we, we do that not just because there's some really messed up people in here and there's a few people out there that need prayer. Thank goodness I don't because that's like, a, that sounds awful, like a fair, awful lot like a Pharisee, doesn't it? The reality is that we all need to be brought before Jesus, and, and that is often not an isolated thing. Often we experience the presence of Jesus through others. That's the, way, that's the way he made it. That's the way he designed it, that we experience his love and his grace often through others. And I would encourage you as, as service ends today, um, maybe you need someone to be a roof crasher for you. For whatever reason, you might feel stuck. We have prayer teams available every Sunday so you can uh, actually experience that. You can have people come alongside you in some way. Uh, but I'd like to take it a step further today. I would, I would encourage you, if there's another person in this room that you know is maybe stuck, that you know is having a hard time, and if you feel comfortable to pray with them as service ends today. Or maybe uh, you just want to grab them by the arm and say, hey, we're going we're gonna go for prayer today. I'm going to be your, I'm going to be, I'm going to carry your mat today. Uh, and you might know somebody's story in here that just needs to be brought before the Lord, that needs to uh, be prayed for, that needs to uh, just be encouraged in their walk and what's going on in their life. Um, 
And so sometimes we just wait for people to respond individually, but I think sometimes we can do a better job of being those type of friends. Say, I want to pray for you, or let's go for prayer together. Uh, and so I think I'm going to end there. Uh, I'm going to, let me pray to close. I'll invite the prayer teams forward. Would you be that type of friend today? If you know someone that could use some encouragement, maybe you can put that into practice today. Jesus, we thank you for community. We thank you that when you call us to follow you, it's not an isolated call, but we join in with everyone else that is following you. And Lord, we thank you that you don't discriminate against the type of people that you've called to follow you. You just don't allow us to pick and choose ourselves who doesn't doesn't get to do that. So Lord, I pray that you would just move us beyond how we often think of faith in terms of this individual thing between you and us. Recognize that we're in this together. May you spur us on to be roof crashers. And we talk about doing that for people across the world in Missions Month, but Lord, we, uh, you call us to do that right here in our own relationships, in our day-to-day lives. Uh, so would you help us step out in courage to be that type of friend for others and to allow, that, uh, allow people to be that type of friend for us. We pray that in Jesus' name, God's people said, have a great week.